0: We are so glad you decided to join us today for our Compelled podcast. We hope this message encourages and inspires you. We would love for you to message us on social media and connect through our website at compelled316.com. Now let's get started. Bob Morrison is here to get us thinking about what it means to live a compelled life. Hey, thanks for hanging out with me today, guys. So it's 9-11, it's a Sunday. You know, usually you would find me glued to the TV watching 9-11 Memorial, if not even up in New York City. I just can't seem to get it out of my head. I think as a volunteer firefighter, it was probably one of those moments that just changed me forever. When that second plane hit the building, I couldn't sit there anymore. I couldn't just watch it on TV. So I did what I felt compelled by God to do, and that was to just go, to go and try to help. And it was the strangest thing, you know, because I really didn't have any credentials that would have gotten me through all of the different barricades and all the different roadblocks along the way. Uh, Once you get into New Jersey, as you approach um, downtown New York, there's this interstate completely blocked by everything from state police, military, All kinds of cops. It looked like something out of Smokey and the Bandit. And as I'm approaching this, uh, it's just my buddy Chris and I, and we're just driving up in our Suzu Trooper, and we have this shoe polish on the windshield basically saying, like, uh, medical rescue, search and rescue on the side, you know, and we have a little thing that says Indiana. But we didn't really have a plan per se. We just knew we were going to go and help. And as we pulled up, to this barricade, I said, this is it, they'll never let us through. And instead, they actually come walking towards the vehicle. I'm gonna get my driver's license out and think, okay, I'm gonna to have to try to really do a hard sell on why they should let me through the barricade. Instead, they walk up to the vehicle and before they even get to me, he just uh, motions for me to roll the window down and he says, hey, hey, Indiana, we got you. Uh, we're gonna move the barricade, just hang with us for a second. They move the barricade. Next thing you know, we're on the Holland Tunnel Expressway as the only vehicle. Now, think about that, man. This is a heavily traveled interstate. And we get to the toll booth, and it's so eerie. There's nobody there. There's no signs. Nothing's lit up. Uh, You can just see the doors literally swinging in the wind. It looks like something out of apocalypse so we're cruising along and I said man we're the only vehicle on this entire stretch of road and we can see the smoke plume from New York City and it just felt very end times to me it was just one of those things when you just go man this is how America's going to come screeching to a halt we didn't know we didn't know the extent of it we just knew that two planes had hit the buildings in New York City and that was it We thought maybe we were going to war, you know? And as we drive in, we get closer and closer to uh, New York, and we finally get to this barricade again, right at the water, and uh, literally same thing happens. They just motion us on through, they move the barricade, and we go park. So we walk up to the coastline, uh, there looking across at New York City, and we can see how massive this disaster site is, And we're thinking, oh man, there's no way we're going to have to go down through here and pay somebody to put us on a boat and run us across. But instead, just by a matter of two or three feet, we step over out of the way and all of a sudden we realize we're standing in a line to get on the boat. And the guy says, hey, make sure you grab a hard hat, put your name on the clipboard and your number. Unbeknownst to us, it's a steel workers' union number that they wanted. I think I probably wrote my phone number, something strange like that. We end up on the boat. Nobody asks to see any kind of ID. We take the water uh, all the way across. We land at Battery Park. We step off the boat, and those first few steps, the ash is so deep in the streets and on the sidewalks that it feels like you're walking in that powder snow that you find out in Colorado. We'd go past military checkpoints. Guys in Humvees pull up and offer us a bottle of water, and at no point does anybody stop us. No one says, hey, who are you? It wasn't like we were wearing some big sign or a patch that says, let us through, we're important. Didn't happen, we just kept going. The next thing you know, we're at ground zero. And we're standing there in complete awe. And it's terrifying, really, because it's so big. Every direction that you can see, there's damage. There's fighter jets flying over the city. And you just hear all of these sirens and crashing of steel as people are trying to use any kind of equipment they can to begin dragging uh, debris out of the way and load it into dump trucks. And so, for the next few days, that was home. And there were things that happened there that I don't ever want to experience again. Things that I don't know that anybody would believe if they weren't there. But I'm telling you, it's what happened. They gave us uh, access. They said, here, this is the way down into the whole, the pit. What you saw on Ground Zero uh, pictures and what you saw on TV where it looked like that giant steel waffle fry sticking up out of the ground with hundreds of men uh, going down in there to do bucket brigades to bring pieces of material out and anything that was like uh, debris or if it was from the commercial airliner, if it was parts for that it went to a different line Uh, any kind of ID that we found anything from wallets to driver's license, any kind of identifying documents those went in buckets as well and they were sent out and then they said hey, Indiana and they pointed us It says, the body bags are right there you guys go ahead on down in there if you find anybody, hold your hand over your head and do a circular motion and we'll know to bring some people down to help you. Try to bag up anybody you find. If you find somebody alive, wave like crazy to get us to come help. And so we waded down into this giant pile of debris that shook and vibrated and had Sharp pieces of steel sticking up everywhere. Pieces of rebar, broken glass. Uh, There were a hundred ways to get hurt down there. In fact, we found out that over 1,100 volunteers got hurt just in the first week. It was like nothing I'd ever seen. The powder was basically ground concrete. A lot of ash from people who were incinerated. And we didn't have a mask. We didn't have anything. We just went down in there to do the best we could we started finding victims and i know that as the days went on our chances of finding somebody alive got less and less now you have to understand the rumor was that they had evacuated several thousand people down through what would be considered the lower level Uh, down in towards the subway, and there was a cafeteria down there. So they said, hey, if they're all trapped down there, they have food and water. They're just waiting for us to get to them. So that was the drive inside of all of us, is that we just had to figure out how to get through several stories of debris, and we would find people huddled together down there waiting to be rescued. That was how we went into it. But as we were there for a couple days, exhaustion just Owned you after a while and we went about 40 hours and at that point you know your eyes are burning they're so miserable from the ash and from all the concrete dust and not being able to go to sleep and you begin to smell really bad because of the body parts uh, you're wearing gloves that are completely saturated and you can't differentiate where the smell's coming from and I remember there was a point where I said man something's really bad around here what smells so bad and they said that's you it's your gloves and your the clothing on your arms is saturated that's not easy to deal with you know when you begin to smell like a morgue and burnt flesh and you're exhausted and you begin to wonder you know what's going to happen next and I remember there was a moment when they began saying that they were going to move more of the material and they needed like a almost like a track hoe and they were trying to move these giant pieces of steel I-beams and the I-beams some of them were three and four feet tall they were massive and they said hey we need you to kind of hurry because there's um, a chance that this pile is going to shift and about then i realized that i had uh, the remains of someone who was lost in the disaster and part of them was under the I beam the clothes were tattered the body was essentially not intact and as i begin to pull i use both hands and try to ease them out from under the i-beam it was obvious it wasn't going to happen and one of the uh, cops that was in leadership he's standing there watching how we load these bodies into the body bag and he looks at me and he says just pull pull hard and as i'm pulling the remains come apart and it feels like i'm tearing a human in half and i remember when it gave, it just, it did something in my soul. It, it literally felt like I could feel my soul tear. And I sat down and I put that remains that I had in a body bag and I looked at my hands that were just completely blood soaked. And I looked at the cop and I looked up at the sky and I remember screaming at the top of my lungs, Uh, just as jets are flying by and metal crashing all around us, being loaded in trucks. And it was the most frustrating anguish that I could ever describe. I don't wish it on anybody. And over the course of those days, we got to the point where we had to lay down and there wasn't really any place to lay down. So we found a hallway that had about eight or nine inches of ash in it. And we literally laid down in the ash because it had a little bit of padding to it. And you couldn't let your mind go to where that ash came from or you wouldn't be able to lay down. And we all worked past the point of exhaustion and we worked past the point where we were making rational decisions. And by the time That first week was over and we headed back to Indiana. Something had changed inside of me. You know, I feel like I lost my innocence to the ways of the world. I thought that basically there were good people out there and that they made sure that bad people didn't get to do anything too terrible. But after I saw that, I realized there's no change in this. There's no There's no going back. We're never going to be the same country that we were. So we drove back to Indiana, and I began to realize that something had to change in me. You know, God was trying to get my attention, trying to get me to be a different kind of person, to be something more than just a guy chasing a paycheck. And I began to feel this... Pull to go and to take care of survivors of disasters. And that's literally how our nonprofit started. We just said one day, <clears throat> we got to do this. We need to start going and helping people. And by the time Hurricane Katrina rolled around, we were doing it. We were going all the time. And I look back and I think, man, Those first 40 years of my life, I felt like they were just wasted. But the reality of it is, God knows exactly when and where to say, now, let's do this. He understands what's going on in your mind and in your heart and in your life. You get to a point where you just think, "Uh, I'm not ready to do that, or I can't do that, or maybe you're saying, I won't do that. But all of a sudden, these pieces begin to click together and they find their way to a point where you just say, yeah, it's now, I get it, it's time, let's do this. And you find yourself talking to God saying, hey, just open the door for me, man, I'm ready, let's do this. And that's when something crazy happens and he opens the door. I don't know where your moment's gonna come. Don't know how it's gonna come, don't need to. You just need to know that it's coming. And when it does, you have a choice. You can literally say no thanks and tune it out and just go on with your life and you'll always wonder, what did I miss? What was it that he was trying to get me to do that I just flat out missed? Or you can say, yeah, that's the day I remember it. I can look back and say, that's the day that I said, let's do this. Take me on that journey, God, and wherever it takes me, Whatever it is, whoever I meet, whatever I'm doing, I'm good with it. As long as it brings Him glory, in the end, that's really all it's about. So on this 9-11 weekend, I pray that you find the answers to some of those questions. Keep seeking Him out. And keep remembering that saying that we saw on every fire truck and on every TV channel that said, never forget. Because it was about remembering 9-11, never forgetting all the people who paid a price to go in there to rescue the innocent. And the same thing's true with Jesus. Never forget, he paid a massive price, one that nobody else could pay. He paid it for you, he paid it for me. So my hope is that as you go through this next week and on your journey that you can say to yourself, I'll never forget the price that Jesus paid for me. Hey, this is Bob Morrison. I'll see you somewhere out there. We are truly thankful you chose to spend some time with us here at Compelled. If you enjoyed today's message, We encourage you to like it, share it on social media, and check out our website, compelled316.com. God bless you, and we hope you have an amazing day. We'll see you somewhere out there.